I mean, that's like a good place to start this podcast is like to say that I have trying to come to terms with the fact that so many things about the virus are completely out of my individual control. And so I really just need to like stay calm because I'm still in control of my individual state of mind. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. The last week has really shown me that I am completely capable of driving myself nuts with anxiety, that I need to take like stronger measures against it, essentially. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Well, how have you been? Do you have anything nice, like positive in your life to say? Because that might cheer me up. When I was writing the briefing intro today, I was trying not to be like trying to to re- rehash everything everyone said already because i think thematically it's like all the same stuff it's like working from home but i think it's just really about how far a small gesture can do like i went for dinner with uh, a friend yesterday with kenny from yardbird and i could tell like he needed this type of like interaction just like the two of us went for dinner and drinks just you know and it was like kind of realized how things that are immaterial actually can have so much benefit on someone's life Mm -hmm. and it's just like now that we're in this phase now where i think you're you're very quickly determining the essentials of life versus the luxuries and the things you thought were essential are actually luxuries it actually becomes a little bit more calming when you realize how much simpler your life can be in the face of these sort of like these adversities out of your control like these things have been imposed on us yeah we're dealing with it and actually, if you should be sort of grateful of what you have, but also the ability to be happy and or manage the world around you, not like what someone else is doing, but how you interact with the world, yeah, actually are the keys to like your own personal like sanity in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Joan, who I talk about a lot on this podcast, we've been talking at such great frequency over the last week and it has really helped. And then for one of our phone calls, we intentionally said, okay, we're just going to not talk about the virus for the entire duration of this phone call. Like we're just going to try really hard to talk about movies and TV shows and other anecdotes that are not virus related as much as possible. And it really helped like just for the 35 minutes that we were on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you on that. I mean, we also we have to acknowledge the fact that we are lucky to have food and shelter and those are essential things that we have. And then, yeah, a lot of other things like going out actually does turn out to be a luxury. The essential thing of like having a relationship with your friends does not require being physically in a bar together i don't know like there's there's certain things i'm 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 wondering about everything and it's just 
I try not to be overly analytical because my position of analysis right now is actually it's almost inconsequential because it's not the most important thing right now. You know what I mean? Like I like that. Like me analyzing culture and thinking where culture is going to go is like it's almost things that I just keep. I can still do it. It won't stop me from doing it. But I just like it's not worth sharing right now because it feels as though it it's putting this sort of ex- extra cognitive load into the world when it's not needed and people don't have the capacity or bandwidth unless they're really looking for it right yeah like i'll have people that hit me up and they'll be like oh how are things going like all this other stuff and that that's sort of like a little bit different because it opens the door it depends what you mean by cultural analysis because it both could be and isn't helpful at the same time on one hand like if you can occupy yourself or not just you, Eugene, but if people can occupy themselves with that kind of thinking and that distracts them, like I think that is great to have something else to think about. And then also actually having material out there that is not strictly virus related is also helpful. But you are right about cognitive load. Like I would not ask people to spend time caring and worrying about certain things right now when they already have to care and worry about the virus so you can be culturally analytical but now's like not a great time to like pressure people does that make sense exactly that's kind of how i look at it yeah like we still really need entertainment and that's kind of my subject today right is about entertainment and enjoying culture in the time of quarantine so Mm -hmm. if if you participate and like publish that like i feel people would immediately flock to it and like want to have that anyway i i, I think i should start since this sure. entire introduction has been about the virus and my subject is related to that so my subject does not come from any single article it comes from a bunch of different things and then some of my own thoughts but the subject headline i've written is experiencing culture while in quarantine the magnificence and also anxiety-inducing nature of connectivity. So first of all, I mean, people have spent so much time now reading the news. I'm sure some of these things people have already come across. There's been this real expansion of the offering of virtual experiences, whether pre-existing ones or new ones that are being created like on the spot as a kind of substitute for physical experiences that were canceled. Mm -hmm. So for example, there are the Art Basel online viewing rooms, which originally was planned to run in parallel with Art Basel. And so it was something that was already in production, but now it is replacing the canceled physical event of Hong Kong Art Basel. And what it is, it's these online curated rooms created by the exhibitors, and it shows thousands of artworks, and you can go and look, and then you can place inquiries with the galleries for purchase. Another example is the New York Metropolitan Opera. They had to cancel their shows, and so they're offering free nightly streams of operas. Another thing that was already in production is Cause and the Acute Art app launched this free companion expanded augmented reality sculptures. They had originally done an AR project called Expanded Holiday that was supposed to be in like certain physical locations. So the AR only worked in certain actual real life locations, but they've now released something that works in your home as a response to the coronavirus quarantine. Have you played around with it? No, have you? They launched it and the only way you could play around with it was if you purchased one of the artworks and they're on timelines but what happened was shit kind of hit the fan 
And then once it hit the fan, they just made one sculpture available for free. And I'll just forward it to you right now on WhatsApp, actually. I, I get it. Yeah, the original one wasn't free, except I think in certain locations. And now there is a free version. One single one. Or a free sculpture. One single sculpture. Yep. Other things that have come up in response to this virus are the Copenhagen International Documentary Film Festival, which was supposed to happen in March. And then they switched to make the entire thing virtual, which is pretty interesting. So all of the films are available at certain times online. And then Cannes is also working on doing the same thing for their upcoming film festival. And also there's this Google Chrome extension called Netflix Party that is for watching Netflix together with your friends. This is just like a selection, but just to say that like, because we cannot go out into physical places and enjoy culture, real time, real life with people, there's been all of these different innovative responses to offer that from your home. And then you could still participate in it with other people. So a lot of these things are at specific times, right? So it's kind of like you all are online participating simultaneously, mm. even if you don't know that they're present. Mm -hmm. One side of this is like, I think this is great. Well, one thing, it's good economically that people are like being creative in ways to make things available online and then still charging people money for it. So it allows these cultural institutions to like continue to exist. And also when it's offered for free, that's also great because, you know, as we said in the intro, like people can have entertainment and enjoy culture, even though they're quarantined and like anxious about the virus. You have sent me this op-ed called The Coronavirus Crisis is Showing Us How to Live Online by Kevin Roos. Did you read this one? Mm, I think what I did was I just batch sent a bunch under the pretense of it could be grouped together but yeah. i also so, I, I have to i have to preface this too i feel as though like for the most part i've been so sort of like maybe it's bad but it's i've already formulated my opinion without needing to actually have materials presented to me if that makes sense like it just feels as though i've been living and breathing this work from home thing for so long i didn't feel the need to necessarily deep dive further I don't think my point of view on this is really about work from home. Uh, no, sorry. It's not about sorry. the work aspect. I, I kind of understand. It's more like, actually, maybe I should walk it back two steps because I've actually been really fascinated as of late around how we differentiate physical and virtual experiences. And I say that on the basis of, I mean, it, I'll talk about it later when we talk about restaurants, but I find it very interesting how you determine whether something is worth your time to mm. go and do physically or if there's a, a virtual substitute and where do you like how do people analyze and think about those things okay so where so where that where that comes into play is that to me entertainment is something that i know for a fact given how some of these things are presented they're a nice substitute given the limitations but they're definitely not absolutely the best it's interesting that this is your angle on this because this is not my angle. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. I am going to present what I was wanted to talk about. And then we can talk about the physical virtual okay. experiences selection when we go into your subject. So actually, before you sent me that Kevin Roos op-ed, it's really more of an op-ed than like a journalistic piece. I had read this article by Amanda Hess, also published in the New York Times, called The Unending Anxiety of Coronavirus Content. And she talks about 
how, yes, social media has been reliably better and more informative in its fact-checking than we expected, but it's also a place that feeds anxiety in people. And she talks about, you know, how everywhere mm -hmm. you look, there's content about the virus. So all of the places that you might have gone to, like, escape real life, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, etc., now it's just inundated. Like, all of the memes are also coronavirus-related. And so while previously we might have had, you know, we were talking about cognitive load and bandwidth, right? Previously, we might have been able to respond intelligently and with genuine emotion to all of these things. Now it's like this constant, she, these are her words, like a constant low buzz of distraction. And she also comments on how we are kind of drawn to seeing people behave badly in the times of the virus. And we've been really consumed with like different representations of reactions and updates. You know, like just earlier today, we were talking about how we had friends sharing about the quick sale of guns in certain parts of North America, you know, and that it's is- It's not even the quick sale. It's like the desire to go out and buy a gun. Yeah. So we were commenting on that and it was like a little bit of like- it's kind of hazy because on one hand, it could be like reading the news, but on the other hand, it's like a little bit of voyeurism. And so I read this article first before I read the op-ed you sent me. And the op-ed you sent me by Kevin Roos is, I mean, Hess doesn't say like, and therefore we should all log off, you know, like that's not her conclusion. But it is interesting reading both of them because Roos is more like the internet offers so much possibility for positive connections between people. And Hess kind of says that there's also the possibility with all of this connectivity that you become increasingly anxious and isolated and all the bad negative emotions. You know, and I think I've said this before, but it's just like in this time, it's so clear to me that the internet is not naturally a good or an evil thing. It's just what we individually make of it. And it's just like how the structures around financing it, like the economics of it, have pushed in a certain direction. Because I agree, it's the article you referenced, the coronavirus crisis is showing us how to live online. Yeah. I, I took a quick sort of skim. And maybe this is something that I never really felt in terms of the polarizing aspect of the internet. Like I never looked at it as like, oh, it's inherently bad because I think that's too easy of an argument. It's neither this nor that, right? It's kind of like go to any certain place and you will find positive bits, you'll find negative bits. But I think it's very, I don't know if short-sighted is the word, but it's just like, it's its as good or bad as you want to assess it. I think it's, I would change one word in what you said. I think it's as good or as bad as you participate in it. I do think it's, I mean, I know that you mentioned like financial uh, uh, constructs, but I actually define, think that- define, define participate. As in, I, I mean, I can use a personal example. So like if I consume, if I consume, I'm still participating. Is that considered? Yes. Like that's still participation. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Consumption is still participation in my current definition of it. So like last week was pretty bad for me in terms of where I was emotionally. I know that sounds kind of intense right now, but I was just not in a great place and really even though I wasn't spending lots of time on Twitter and Instagram, I realized that it was not doing me any favors. So I actually wound up logging off of both of them. And now I feel like so much better. 
And I know this sounds like such an obvious thing, like it seems so apparent, but it was just because I was reading and not making clear decisions to participate in online activity that would make me feel better. Like I was just, mm-hmm. it's like I I was attracted to, you know, refreshing what the case numbers are and like finding out, you know, these sad stories about medical health workers responses and things like that and just like realizing that that's unhealthy for me Mm -hmm. and i think that's like what i mean by like the individual decision to like how you participate in internet activity Mm -hmm. so like roos on the other side i'm gonna read a quote from him he's so optimistic he says But if there is a silver lining in this crisis it may be that the virus is forcing us to use the internet as it was always meant to be used to connect with one another, share information and resources, and come up with collective solutions to urgent problems. It's a healthy, humane version of digital culture we usually see only in schmaltzy TV commercials where everyone is constantly using a smartphone to visit far-flung grandparents and read bedtime stories to kids. He paints this really rosy picture, you know, with like Zoom birthday parties and coffee dates online. And I definitely think that that is better for you, but it also takes like self-initiative to make it happen. Mm-hmm. That's where I was in reading about like the ways companies have been innovative about like making these cultural offerings is great, but also people at home more than ever have to decide that like they want to do that. Because even though we can gather online, it's still easier when you're at home alone to decide, actually, I'm just going to lie in bed and scroll through Instagram for the next two hours. There's less of that structure of going outdoors to like make you participate in activities that are healthy for you. Do you think that right now, like the another thing that I've been really fascinated about is just we've we've now embarked on sort of this massive experiment that wasn't done out of a place of control. It was sort of forcibly put upon us a lot of us like i mean for us we always has we always had the choice to work from home but for some people they're working from home for the first time yeah and they've done it they've had to do it forcibly right yeah so now it just what i'm always fascinated about is like these generational changes yeah and what are things that we're going to take away from this it's not really about to actually discuss that but it's just like putting it out there that we've now serviced substitutes so like a coffee date remotely is definitely not the same as us meeting yeah. Right. But actually it's not it maybe it's it's a seventy five percent substitute and that yeah. sometimes is better than nothing. Yeah. So I think that's what's most interesting is that we've sort of been pushed to one side and now we've we have this small confined sort of playground or, or sandbox and we're kind of digging around to see what we can surface and what we can create within that sandbox. Yeah. So I mean I, I think maybe when I first said I was like I was I was gonna bring up the point will these digital art galleries actually have long-term sustainability or is it just nice to do now because there's nothing else to do or because it's novel? Mm, interesting. Right? Another point to this too is I'm probably of the age where like we never had very many digital tools when we were in university. You, like you actually yeah. took notes, you know, on a, on a notepad, right? Yeah, yeah. I did not but bring then, an iPad or a laptop into class. But then now like it's pretty normal to have like, you know, you have a Chromebook, a cheap, Chromebook, or you have a laptop, you're taking yeah. notes, 
um, whatever it may be. And it's also the opportunity to maybe buy a digital textbook. Like we never really had that option and we've always recognized physical is better, but sometimes the trade-off of convenience makes it more palatable. I think what is interesting is to see if people's adjustment of their habits sticks. So I think, you know, to respond to, you know, these cultural institutions offering virtual experiences of arts and culture, like will those last? It really depends if in this time, the way people are forming new connection and online habits is going to stick. And I think that's what I was responding to in all of this. It's like, it's nice that people are offering these things and that Zoom and Google Hangouts exist, but it also takes like the individual decision to make these like your new routine and your new habits. And some people are better suited to it than others, or some people already have practice with it than others. And I think it's kind of like how, you know, you learn to exercise and some people are better at learning to exercise as adults because they've like always exercised growing up. And then some people are not as good as it is kind of like that as a metaphor. Like, can you learn to bring more things in your life online and virtually? And do you enjoy doing that? And I think then businesses and companies and cultural events will also respond in kind if that's where people want to be, if that's where people find like 75%, like you said, of their enjoyment still exists by doing it online. Or more, maybe. Maybe it's actually better than physical things. Yeah, I don't know. I think at the very least, what you've done is you've allowed yourself the opportunity to do it because there is no other substitute. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really good for us in a way. Like, I mean, it's been good for me to recognize like... Even though I'm a freelancer and use my computer and the internet to work, to learn how to also do my socializing and entertainment-based activities online and how to do that in a healthy way. I mean, I think you and I would agree that it's almost always good when you're forced into a position where you need to learn something. And this is like, like you were saying, this is this mass generational movement that we're not in control of that is requiring us to do that. Were there any last things that you wanted to mention to kind of wrap things up? Yeah, I wanted to read Rusa's conclusion, even though I think the entire article, the point of view is a little bit more optimistic than I am personally about the use of the internet. It's also kind of necessary, I think, to look at that point of view. And his conclusion reads, As the virus forces us indoors, we should be thinking of ways to invest in our digital spaces and build robust virtual connections that can replace some of the physical proximity we're losing, as well as mobilizing to support our real-world communities in a time of enormous need. We can use technology to meet this crisis rather than just distracting ourselves from it. I think that's kind of pushing me in the direction I want to be in, to think of when I feel better as a person, like instead of just distracting myself from the bad things happening globally, how can I also be helping others or to be supporting the community I'm in? And we are part of a global community that has used Mm -hmm. virtual tools to hang out. And so I was, you know, one suggestion you said was like, oh, what if making it up was a live recording? And that's one thing we could do. And we could also hold more open offices or just do something more casual like i feel like i'm in that space where like actually 
we, we should be considering doing that, considering that we do have a community that exists online. And now that the virus has spread throughout Europe and North America more widely, there are parts of our community that will be feeling a greater need for community than they might have been a month ago. Yep. And it's also thinking how to add value. I think add value is always kind of this weird word, but it's just like, how can I support you? How can I help you? Right. And I think a lot of us are going through some difficult times. You might lose your job. You might lose clients. You have anxiety around the situation at hand, like a lot of things. And sometimes it's just like talk it through and be reassured that beyond the tangible things that are, are most certainly out. How do I put this? I don't want to dismiss anything. Right. But it's more so having some comfort in knowing that people care about you. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I think actually. Like, it doesn't cost you anything to kind of reach out, but yo, just checking on somebody. Yeah. I mean, last week we talked about family. And so that and this kind of go hand in hand in the sense that even if your family is spread out and you can't meet up physically, or even if you were in the same city and you can't meet up physically, you can still support each other. What is your subject this week, Eugene? My subject this week is why luxury fashion houses still open restaurants. This feels like the most inconsequential and like it's like at the very bottom of the list of what anyone's thinking about. But I wanted to actually choose a topic that I felt was sort of disconnected yeah. like in, a, in its own vacuum, you know? Yeah, let's go for so it. So I, cho- I chose this. So in this piece by... Melanie Abrams for Vogue Business, she dives into the concept of restaurants and F&B concepts opened by fashion houses. And I think that you could also group restaurants and F&B as well as like hotels. Like we've talked about this before, Muji Hotel, whatnot. Like I think a lot of these brands known for one thing are, are suddenly entering into hospitality or F&B. Mm-hmm. And in one of the first sentences of the article, Abrams mentions, it's a continuation of fashions interlinking with food, but the strategy has changed. Restaurants bring new customers in and help secure top client loyalty. And over the course of the article, they do mention a few examples. Some are probably a little more familiar than others. But so, for example, retailer Bergdorf Goodman's Goodman's Bar. Like that's actually it because Goodman's Bar is the is the lounge or whatever. Tiffany & Co's The Blue Box Cafe, Ralph Lauren's Polo Bar, Cafe Leandor by Amy Leandor. That's probably Ami. Cafe Kitsune by Maison Kitsune, which is fashion and music, like a music label. Kith Treats, which is like kind of ice cream and cereal. Babe Cafe. Uh, actually, in Hong Kong, Off-White just opened a cafe, but it feels very much like a licensing play. Like it's not too connected to Off-White, the clothing brand. Before it, we it move is, on, have yeah. you eaten at any of these? I think I've had a coffee from a Ralph Lauren thing, but I think the reason why I'm mostly disinterested in these experiences is actually, I'm not disinterested. Let me take that back. I think it's more that I've yet to come across one that I'm actually really interested in because I think there's different ways of approaching this. Mm. Um, I have had a coffee at Cafe Kitsune in Paris. I have two. I have two. I had one, uh, the one in Tokyo. Please continue. Yeah. So one thing that was mentioned in the beginning was a little bit of the changing sentiment around these restaurants, right? In the past, restaurants were created so people would stay longer. 
mm-hmm. hopefully shop more. Mm-hmm. Now it's actually changed. It's about rewarding and creating higher touch moments. So on this list, for example, you'll have some higher end establishments. Chanel Japan also has a restaurant where they partnered with uh, Alain Ducasse, French chef. And that is a much different experience than, say, a Kith Treats, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like ice cream and cereal. And Chanel Japan's Guillermo Gutierrez said, What do you do with good customers? They buy a lot of products. So what can you give them that is different from their experience? We invite them to lunch or give them a voucher. And when we want to do something special for the brand, we close a restaurant for a special dinner, for example, which is something you cannot pay for. So as you can tell, these are actually different ways of interacting. It's more like, hey, you know what? You've acquired a customer. Now, how do I keep the customer? That seems like the strategy, right? For these types of arrangements, what's also worth noting is that if you're Chanel, yes, you might make great handbags, jewelry, whatever, Mm -hmm. but you're not well-versed in running restaurants. So often, you know, in this instance, Chanel has brought in Alain Ducasse to run this uh, restaurant component. And it's interesting because as much as people think restaurants are these big financial opportunities, they're not really. You know, like in this case, it's almost- The piece says it takes two years to break even. Yeah, and there's like a a piece that was, uh, that I shared in Slack a few weeks ago or maybe like seven days ago. And it was a restaurant in Boston called May May who basically opened their books and mm-hmm. they just showed you, oh, this is how much money we make, mm-hmm. right? And this is where all the costs go to. So it's definitely not something that makes a lot of money. Yeah. But I also think there's different ways of looking at it because the margin on a cup of coffee is going to be different than, you know, hiring chefs and yeah. cooks and Being servers. like a fine dining a- dinner service. Exactly. Exactly. And then when you asked me at the beginning of the conversation, you asked me like, oh, have I gone to these? And yeah, like I've gone to them. But I think there's things that are going on through my mind when I decide whether or not I want to go to one of these spots. Yeah. You wanted to talk about how someone makes a decision to go to a physical experience. Yeah. I mean, is the food and beverage itself going to be able to stand on its own? I think that's really important. Or is it just, hey, I'm going to go get this coffee and the coffee itself just looks nice because the branding's nice. It's like kind of an offshoot of, hey, I'm going to take the Bape Camel and I'm going to put this on a paper coffee cup. But do you think that uh, there are people like us and then there are people who are not like us who do not care as much if the food is actually of good? Of course, totally. But I'm just kind of giving you my checklist. Oh, yeah, because yeah. I was, well, before this current time, I was trying to make plans with a friend to have high tea before I left London because it's like a very English thing. And she she put it this way. She was like, we can go to a high tea place that's like great thematically, great decor, very classy, you know, sunlight, tiered, whatever, sandwich trays, et cetera. Or we can go to like a place that has good scones. I was like, why would I pick the place that's pretty that doesn't have good scones? I just, yeah. I just, I was like, no, <laughs> I'll, I will take the yeah. good scones and then like not be in Harrods or Fortnum and Mason's or whatever it is. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the second part of that is, has the brand brought in the right help? Mm-hmm. So for example, if their operator is a restaurant that is notoriously bad for like actually doing food, then like, it's also not enticing. Yeah. And then the third one I think is where the kind of collaborative part comes in what's the value add of the brand? Like, how are they imparting their brand essence into F&B? Mm-hmm. So that to me is, is, is kind of interesting. Like, I think those are things I think about. 
I, I've been very, very adamant with this in the past. Like, just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you have the chops or the necessary taste level to succeed in a different place. Yeah. You know, I, I was like, I, the thing that always bothers me is, I think I mentioned this like a few, a few episodes ago. It's like, I always get, uh, really annoyed when I go into a restaurant and, and you see a celebrity's photo on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's not necessarily a marker of whether the restaurant's good. It's really right? not. <laughs> so that, I mean, yeah. Like what I do find interesting is sort of this intersection that can kind of come between fashion and coffee, uh, restaurants, whatever it may be. And I think, I think food itself is still kind of an area where, you know, I mentioned in the first segment, we're now at a place where we're starting to understand what are the things we can do online and what are the things that are required to be offline or we think mm-hmm. we know what we need to do offline. Mm-hmm. And I think actually this becomes an important draw, this idea of, brand meets F&B like non F&B brand collaborating with F&B because you're just giving another reason to go like hopefully there's a yeah, retail component yeah. there's also a food component you're kind of just stacking the things that are available as an activity and you know for a fact that like the photo you'll take of that latte I'm just making this up won't look as good when you get it from from the delivery spot well you could say that it is turning one thing like shopping into more of a multifaceted experience because if it's just shopping like if it's just buying a handbag that very easily becomes a thing that you do online where you can just yep. buy the handbag and get like like you were saying earlier like almost the same amount of pleasure in doing that but if it becomes yeah. like shopping plus food and then plus like God knows, like some places have florists in them, you know, like you can buy flowers as well. Then it becomes not a replaceable experience. I can't online buy the handbag and have coffee with a friend and then also buy flowers like for my mom or something. Mm-hmm. So I get that, like why this is necessary. So and I, I should probably preface some of this, like I've been working on a project that obviously has been derailed because of everything that happened over the last few months that um, is basically like a kind of an experiential retail space in Shanghai. And one mm-hmm. of the components was like, hey, let's try to build like an F&B brand to go in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I say build, this. Yeah, and I, I say build not on the, on the basis that like, I feel I can do it, but it's kind of like who in the network has the capabilities and the expertise to do it. And how do you actually properly identify? Because this actually is like, maybe the, the layer on top is we all know the outcomes of good collaborative work but how do you facilitate and how do you put in the structure and make it happen you know right? food it's is a lot so of things. food is so interesting food and coffee and like f and b food and beverages is so interesting because when we talked about this project i said that people will go to great lengths to try new f and b and they don't do the same thing for shopping because shopping is just more achievable, like online, you can compare items and prices, et cetera. But with F&B, at least the way I think is like, as much as I read reviews, it's still something I want to try for myself. And there is so much potential for variety in like how good something is or isn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like why F&B remains like a thing. I mean, I know right now in this time, like, a lot of takeaway and delivery is happening, but I still have a lot of faith in 
physical FMB, even though the margins are so difficult to like yep. crack. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder how retail would change if I don't know why I'm saying this. Like I don't know if it actually ends up going anywhere, but it's more we've basically pushed online retail into this direction where I no longer really have to go because if I buy something, I can just return it. If it doesn't fit well, I just return it. Yeah. And I've tried to get out of that habit. Not great and for do the planet. As much re- exactly. Like I've tried to do, if I really want to buy something, like I try to do as much research so I can get it spot on so I don't mm-hmm. have to return it. Mm-hmm. And what does it look like if, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm making this up. Like what happens if you can no longer do free shipping? Like it was, it was like a government mandated thing that you couldn't do free shipping. That would really drive people back into brick and mortar stores. Would that be good? Would that actually work? We think that might happen, but I'm just curious, like, how do you get people to go out and do whatever? Like, maybe, is it a better outcome? I don't know. It's more like understanding, like, the value that comes with these spaces. I don't know Um, if it's a better outcome. I don't know where I'm going with this, actually. I I feel unable to say, like, what is a better outcome? Because, like, first of all, we're not specifying, like, a better outcome for who. And, you know, I know that we're... We we're talking about this as kind of like a siloed subject, but when we talk about retail, I can't not think about climate change and the fact mm-hmm. that we just need to stop shopping, period. So that's probably not helpful to mention right now. Yeah. But I just think that the brick and mortar stores, like the luxury stores that we're talking about, this article doesn't really address it, but Part of the reason they continue to open restaurants or try new things is because they understand that their retail business is going to go down, like the way that it has been done traditionally. And so they have to find alternative routes to maintain a luxury brand that is not always going to be directly like selling a handbag every season. I would say that in fairness, they're probably, if you were to graph it out, I think it looks different. Like, People's propensity to buy expensive items online decrease. Mm-hmm. Like the more expensive it is, the less likely, right? So maybe that's like a good reason to bring people in, and maybe this whole concept actually might not necessarily work with lower margin items. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Though also there are people in referenced in this article that say they have like this lower tier restaurant or cafe so that people will come in and make like the cheaper impulse buys like accessories or home goods. London-based women's shoe designer Sigrid Gelati Maynard runs a weekend coffee takeaway through a side window of her shop Pepanita. She says the sideline adds 15,000 to 20,000 pounds to her business over a year, covering the coffee cups, barista wages, business rates, as well as 10% of turnover. It brings in a different kind of person who wouldn't necessarily be drawn to the shop. She says, as even men can spend a hundred pounds worth on socks, badges, and other knickknacks as they wander in to drink their coffee. So it de- yeah. really depends on the the brand itself. So in this case, because this brand offers like a variety of lower price items, they use the F and B pool to get people to like wind up buying those items rather than the higher price things. It's probably not the same play as like Bergdorf Goodman with Goodman's Bar. That's probably more about like what you were saying about high-end touch points. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about a luxury fashion brand that makes them better suited to 
open an F&B experience versus a tech company or a automotive company? I think taste is like taste, not in the, like the, the sense of food, but just like a certain level of taste design and the ability to in, incite like human emotion. Mm. Like, I think that's one, one thing that's really good with fashion, right? It's like, how do you create an, a human emotion? And I think they're really good at managing scarcity. Although food and scarcity is like, it exists, but it doesn't exist. You know, it's not the same. Like, it's not always the same level of marketing. Like, yes, okay, you know, it limits to 100 bowls a day, right? Yeah. Like, there's always that element. But I don't think that too many restaurants necessarily go in and they put like a, a ticker next to every single item. And like, this is the countdown. Well, but it is part of it. High-end luxury for scarcity, it would just be tables or like the appearance of a lack of ability to get into a place. But I think you're right. What is interesting is that technically, when it comes to actual taste of the food itself, there's no saying that a luxury brand would do that better than a tech company or an automotive company. But I would think that the luxury brand would do everything else surrounding the experience better Mm -hmm. no i think that that's the one thing that fashion still has the upper hand relative to almost every other industry is its ability to manage scarcity and how to just make things cool basically like i think yes they do exist i was gonna say it's control over our identities and how much it's still a part of how we outwardly project our identities Mm -hmm. well yeah that too i don't like we talk about that a lot but i guess it's more well if we're talking about the inherent advantages over other industries like that's the what i think of but i think you're also right anything else you want to talk Mm -hmm. about today nope that's uh that's about it for me I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>